0: A reading from the life of Jesus, as told by his good friend and follower, John. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the women still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, "'Women, where are they? Has no one condemned you?' "'No one, sir,' she said. "'Then neither do I condemn you,' Jesus declared. "'Go now and leave your life of sin.'"
1: My name is Nathan, and yes, I'm the millennial teaching pastor on staff. Uh, I think it says that on my job description. Uh, and I know, I know, when you've got the young guys up, me and Sawyer up this morning. I already know the, the description of our so-called... Entitlement generation. Everyone's a special snowflake with 20 participation trophies who have incredibly high self confidence, complain about everything, can't keep a job or relationship, and have an overinflated sense of ego. Good morning. Uh, but as the research actually points out, uh, this overinflated uh, sense of identity did not begin with the millennials as they have been uh, researching this recently. It actually began in the 1960s and 70s with what's called the self-esteem movement. And the idea behind this movement was that we believed if you felt better about yourself, then you would do better. And so the idea was if we could start really highlighting the successes of kids and downplaying all the failures of kids, then everyone would just do better. And so we started kind of telling everyone, hey, you, you know, you're special, you have unlimited potential, you can do anything you want. We say things like, the sky's the limit, right? You can do absolutely anything. And then we downplay any failure, any mistake, so that no one feels too bad and they keep their self-esteem high. The problem is that's just not how self-esteem works. We now have research behind it. Psychologist Roy Bowmeister claims this. He says, the early findings showed that indeed... Kids with high self-esteem did better in school and that they they got into less uh, various kinds of trouble, right? It's just that we learned self-esteem is a result, not a cause. What that means is, yes, the kids with high self-esteem are also the kids who make good grades, but it's not having high self-esteem that helps you make good grades. It's making good grades that helps you have high self-esteem. When you realize I can do something and I have confidence in myself, Suddenly, you feel better about yourself. But we continue just to tell everybody hey, it's not, not, nothing, no failure is that big of a deal, and everything you do is amazing. So, suddenly, you have a generation, and as we're going to learn in a moment, an entire culture of people being told you're the most important person, you're incredibly special, you can do all kinds of things, but the reality of life does not match up with that. So what you end up with is you begin to inwardly struggle with anxiety and depression and the fear of failure while at the same time, that's what's internally happening. At the same time, you are constantly outwardly promoting this this view of self-importance and self-promotion. You're protecting this identity that you are lovable and valuable and special, which is what we call social media. That's all social media is, me lifting up this highlight reel of my life. And Gene Twinge, who actually wrote the book on millennials, wrote a book called The Entitlement Generation in 2006. Three years later, wrote a book called The Narcissism Epidemic that was really about how it's not millennials, it's everybody. It don't matter if you're 70 or 80, everybody lives with this kind of view. It turns out millennials were the canary in the coal mine, so to speak. They're the symptom of a much deeper problem in our entire culture, We are a culture that is obsessed with promoting and inflating and protecting what's often called in the psychological world, the false self. This version of me that I think makes me look successful and attractive and valuable and worthy. Twin says in her book, it's why people, and this was in 2009, were five times more likely in 2009 to have cosmetic surgery than they were in 2000. 2009 but that number has gone up since then. It's why the average American spends close to $1,800 a year on beauty supplies, and some of you ain't spending nothing, and so some of y'all are spending way more than that, right? It's behind all the public scandals in our world where everything looks good, but secretly there's all this stuff going on back here. It's what's behind all the stats you see about how social media is ruining our mental health because the version everyone else puts out and the version I put out Does't match the real me. As Twinge puts it, it's what's making people depressed, lonely, and buried under piles of debt. It's at the same time why we protect ourselves from all criticism. Anybody says anything to you, whew, defenses are up. It's why we don't know how to apologize anymore. No one really knows how to say they're sorry anymore because that has to let down the false self for a moment. It's why no one can take responsibility for their failures anymore. Certainly why we as a culture have lost the ability to talk about sin. Because sin, well, that does not fit into, as we've been saying in this series, the story that I want to tell about myself. These failures, these mistakes, and I'm talking about present sin, not just something that happened a long time ago, something that's happening right now. Well, that doesn't fit in that. We're in this series where we're talking through the Jesus stories in the Bible. What we've been saying is that, What God is doing throughout history, including right now, is He is telling a story of interactive life with God. That God is inviting human beings, now through Jesus, into life with Him, where we can participate in life with God. The problem is that most of us have our own stories we want our lives to tell. I got my own goals. I got my own dreams, my own ambitions for all different kinds of things. And what I'm trying to do is not figure out how to line up with God's story. I'm trying to figure out, I mean, you're church people, you're here. You want to include God, but I'd really like if God could just get on board with my story. How can God bless my marriage? How can God bless my career? How can God bless all the things I want to have happen? Not me trying to figure out what does it look like for me to get on board with God's story. I'm trying to write my own story. So whenever we do something harmful or sinful or that just doesn't fit in with the kind of person who would live the story I want my life to tell, we try to reframe our behavior as if it was a different person who did it. Here's what I mean. If You've ever been really, really tired, so you're a little irritable? Right? You're willing to say some things you probably didn't say before. been really emotionally overwhelmed, got a lot of stress going on at work, and you come home, and then someone does one thing, and something's about to blow up, or in case maybe anyone in the room has ever been a little drunk, and maybe all of a sudden you said something or you did something, and the next day you feel terrible about it, so you go back to the person, and you don't say, I'm so sorry, I should have never done that. What you do is go, I'm sorry, that's not like me. That's not really who I am. You see, there was this circumstance that brought a brand new person into being. There was a brand new person who took over my body. And it was not me. And suddenly, all these things, these are my favorite ones. I didn't mean what I said, which isn't true. You meant what you said. You didn't mean to say it out loud. You meant everything you said about them. But suddenly, the false self, because you were tired we a little tipsy or all this pressure from work and all this other stuff came and the false self you had created crumbled a little bit and the real you that you'd been hiding, all those thoughts you think about everyone, all the things you wish you would do, suddenly it comes out and you go, oh, that wasn't me. This nice, perfect, this is me. This is the real me. I don't know who that guy was. We try to reframe it because we can't take responsibility. The mask you wear comes down and everyone can see the real you. And the truth is, we're lying to ourselves, so I don't have to apologize. I lie to you, so I don't have to apologize. I lie to myself, because I just don't want to deal with it. We recast our sins as mistakes. We treat them like they're well-intentioned accidents, right? I did the wrong thing, but I mean well. When I called you that name, I meant well. Didn't you know that I mean well? I just didn't do it right. So why years ago we were in a staff meeting and we took these personality tests and mine came back that of everyone on staff, I was most likely to be a politician. <laughs> not flattering. <laughs> then we had to go around and share things about each personality that the person could not see in themselves. And a few of my coworkers started to share things about me and the way I behaved that had either frustrated them or annoyed them. Some of them even shared things I had said and done that it hurt them. See, here's the problem. I had convinced myself all of that behavior was what made me seem intelligent and charming and a hard worker. And so it's very easy in the moment because this is the false self. This is the version of me. I'm, I'm trying to put this back up so no one can really see what's really going on. And in the moment, you start to get really defensive. And you start to feel like, well, maybe they're being too sensitive. Maybe they took it the wrong way. Maybe if I could just explain things and build up a new false self, it would explain why what they felt wasn't really true. I could ignore what they were saying, or I could reckon with what they were saying, and I could deal with it. I could look at these behaviors and patterns of behaviors that were selfish and prideful and call them what they were, sin. But see, if I want to self-edit my story, then I'm going to remove anything that does not fit this false self I'm trying to create. And let's be honest, it's why we have such intense arguments in our culture right now about the history of our own country, because we have a story we want to tell. We got a story. We're the richest nation in the history of the world because we were industrious, and we work harder than everyone else. We pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps. And so then anyone comes in with any other fact, and it doesn't fit that story, And we don't want to reckon with the fact that maybe a lot of our wealth came from the fact that the land we live on, we did not pay a fair price for, or that a lot of the people who worked really hard to build up this country and pull us up by our bootstraps didn't have to be paid for it. I don't want to deal with that, because that don't fit my story. My defenses go up in the moment. This is the same reason why some of us have entire years of our lives we don't talk about. Some of us have entire relationships, an entire marriage you don't tell anybody about. Because you just want to kind of pretend like, well, maybe that wasn't me. Maybe that was somebody else. There are places you can't go because of the people that you might see there and the memories they may bring up or the things they might tell the person you're with. that You just don't want to be true anymore. So I just pretend like they didn't happen. That's why you're not being honest about Why is it you have to have a drink every night? Why does that drink become four every night? That's why you're not being honest about that flirtation at the office or those text messages that you hide. You're not being honest about why is it you keep saying the same hurtful things to the people you love the most, and every time you say, I'm sorry, I'll do better. Well, you're taking it the wrong way. But that's not really me. That's not really who I am. And I'll just do better. Because we don't want to think about it. Because it doesn't really fit the story I want my life to tell. I was actually with someone, and they were telling someone something that this person had done that had hurt them. And the other person said, you know, if I ever said or did anything that made you feel that way, I thought, oh, here we go. And they said, then you must have misunderstood me because I'm not the kind of person who does that. That's not who I am. I know your fact that you've brought to me. That's not me. That was somebody else. You're just imagining it. Because it doesn't fit in the story I want to tell. But as we said in this story, this life, this series we've been saying, this life is not a story about you. So you don't get to edit it. Someone else is holding the facts. You can pretend You can put up a false self and say that's not me, but there's someone else who's the authority over it, and he's the author of the story. That's why we're calling this series Jesus Stories, because our purpose and our meaning is not found in the story I can somehow craft and convince all of you is what's true of me. All of human existence finds its purpose and meaning in the story of Jesus, and Jesus came to save us from our sins, from the corruption And the chaos and the death of our own sin. Because your sin is actually killing your relationships. And it is killing your integrity. And it's actually killing you. But Jesus will not save you from your false self. He only wants to save your real self. Which means this is going to require us to be honest about our sin.
0: One of the most famous stories out of the life of Jesus is one that deals heavily with reaction to sin. It begins with Jesus teaching in front of a crowd, and the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, or the religious leaders of Jesus' day, brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group. This is the worst day of this woman's life. We don't know much about her or her situation. Was she married? Was it the man who was cheating? Was it this a secret passion that grew into something more? Or was she being used by this man for nothing more than her body? We don't know, but either way, being dragged and paraded in front of a crowd to shame her was most certainly never what she planned for her story. She has probably feared this moment for a long time. Every night, laying awake, terrified it will come out. Every look she gets from other people that she questions, do they know? And now everyone does. And though we in our modern world might gasp at the audacity of these men to shame her publicly like this, it's much worse than that. The teachers of the law said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? Adultery was a capital offense. Both Leviticus and Deuteronomy make clear if a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. Both the men and the woman are to be put to death. But did you notice only the woman has been brought before Jesus? And it seems pretty clear why. They were using the question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing Him. These religious leaders are not interested in the law or justice. This isn't about sin for them, it's about trapping Jesus. Most likely, they want Jesus to show grace and compassion that He's known for. They want Him to say, that law is outdated and we don't have to follow it anymore. And Jesus cleverly finds a way to uphold the truth of the law while still offering unimaginable grace. He says the now famous words, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. their older ones first until only Jesus was left with the women still standing there. And this is where we all want to cheer because this is what we want when other people judge us or look down on our behavior. We want to say, who are you to throw stones at me? But in Jesus' day, this kind of grace was so scandalous and controversial. How could Jesus know the law yet show such grace? In our day, this is what we expect. We look down on anyone who would judge this woman at all. And we look a little side-eye when we feel like God might be judging her behavior as well. I mean, we live in the who are you to judge what someone does in the privacy of their own bedroom kind of world. Why does God even care? I mean, maybe He doesn't like it, but why was death the punishment for something as harmless as sex? But notice what the verse in Deuteronomy says is the reason. You must purge the evil from Israel. Sin is not merely a mistake or just giving into our passions or desires. Sin is evil because it is destructive and harmful and it leads to chaos and death. And if you've ever been in a family where there's been infidelity, you know how destructive sin can be. Not just to one person or one marriage or even one family. There are ripples that tear through the fabric of multiple lives. And this is true with all sin. Something that is birthed in the moment of passion, or fear, or anger. Words that are said in disgust, or frustration. Habits that consume our minds and bodies. They are not small things. They bring death. And a loving God must address sin. He cannot allow it to go on having its way in humanity. And what we see in Jesus is that God's plan to deal with sin, to purge sin from His beautiful creation it has destroyed, is not to strike us dead, but instead to give His own life to us. But before we get to Jesus and His victory over sin, we need to stand in the place of this woman who has just had her false self exposed. And we, too, must be brutally honest about the cost of our sin.
1: So I remember very clearly a moment, if not the moment in my life where I stood in this woman's place. I'd only been married about a year at the time, and uh, one morning my wife walked into our bedroom as she was getting ready for work, and she found me on a uh, pornographic website. She knew that this had been a struggle for me in the past. She didn't know it had become a full-blown addiction by this point, that it was something that where I was working at the time, it was happening at work, it was happening at home while she was even in the house getting ready. And see, it wasn't that I thought no one was ever going to find out. It was just that I kind of figured that at some point when it came out, it would be at the point where I'd already dealt with this issue. I knew people were going to find out. I just was hoping that the story I would be able to tell was, I had a problem, but I dealt with it. I've overcome this. This is is over with. It's always difficult. It's always vulnerable to tell this part of my story, but it is much easier to tell you now, 15 years after that day than it was that night when she came home from work. Or as it would be the next couple of days as I had to tell friends and families, brothers and sisters in Christ, that I had a problem I could not deal with and I needed help. Every time you tell the real story about yourself, not this false self-edited version where you figured everything out and you can handle it and it's not a problem. Every time... You feel like this woman. You feel vulnerable and exposed and open to the judgment and condemnation of others. It feels like everything in your life is falling apart. What I have found in that moment and moments afterwards where confession still had to be had, the moments where you're real and you're brutally honest, the voice of Jesus saying, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? That voice is louder then than it ever has been when you're real and honest with someone. The voice of love, the kindness of God that leads us to repentance is more real to us in that moment. Not because it wasn't real before, because you weren't real before. You know, every time you have a false self, an image you're trying to maintain, the real you becomes imaginary. You're just imaginary. It's not that God doesn't love you, it's that you're not real. I'm convinced that the reason that most of us don't feel like God truly loves us, I don't mean like you couldn't write it down on a test, but I mean that it's not real to you. The the reason that most of us don't feel like God delights in us is because we are still hiding behind a false self and self-edited stories that we think this is lovable. We don't want to come before God as Adam and Eve did, naked and unashamed. I mean, fully known. I'm talking warts and love handles and cellulite and everything. Most of us are still sucking in our proverbial gut before God. Like maybe I can just do a little bit more. Maybe I'm not quite as bad. Maybe it's not quite as bad as I, I think it really is. Maybe I can get this a little better. We're still dressing up and hoping that somehow we can bring a strong and a wise and a capable and a worthy person before God and others We're not only doing it before God, we're doing it before other people. We're wearing a mask because we think, if they knew, I mean, if they knew. I mean, we'll say things like, I'm a sinner. I mean, you're in church and we're all going to say, I'm a sinner. Or I struggle with things. But we do not get brutally, painfully honest. We don't say, I looked at porn and I betrayed the trust of my wife. I said words that have caused damage to people that I love. Because of that, because we do not get specific, we hide behind these false selves and we convince ourselves that we are lovable. But inwardly, we think if anyone really knew, including God, if I ever had to really tell him, they wouldn't love me. Or even if they did, they'd think less of me. I'd be pretty weak before them. see, it was when I was forced into the light, I always have to say, I was forced into the light. It was then, when I had to be brutally honest for the first time, a long time since I was a little kid, that I began to understand how much God actually did love me. That not only he loved me, but he liked me. I always kind of felt my whole life like God loved me because the cross contractually obligated him to say he loved me, but he did not like me. It was then that I realized he smiles at me when he looks at me that his eyes light up, that no matter what I thought about God, God could not stop thinking about me. And it was in those moments that I knew these other people in my life, many of whom I had wounded and I had broken their trust. It was in that moment that I knew they deeply loved me and they weren't walking away from me. And over time, as I gained their trust back, there was a deeper level of love and intimacy because they actually knew me. What they knew before was fake. Now they knew me. We have a phrase on our church staff where it's particular for meetings that we have about changes and things we're trying to work on where we say, you have to tell the last 10% of truth. If You've ever been in meetings and you know everyone's kind of trying to be nice because this is someone's project and no one really wants to say. We say, you have to say the last 10% of truth that they may not want to hear. The truth is you're not saying the last 10% of truth with yourself about your own sin. We have to say the last 10% of truth about our own sin to God and to others. As those in the 12-step community know, you have to take a searching and fearless moral inventory. You got to get honest about it. Honest about your sin. This is why we don't apologize well. This is why we don't take responsibility things, and and you've seen this, I could probably get people to raise their hands more for times they've actually been apologized too well, and there'd be barely any hands up, because mostly what we do is we go to someone after everything's done, and we say, hey, I'm sorry we fought, as if fighting was wrong. No, I'm sorry for the things I said to you in the fight. Sometimes you got to have conflict in any relationship. I'm sorry for what I said to you. When I called you this name, when I pulled this thing back up from the past, when I fought unfairly, that was wrong. I was wrong. That wasn't fair. Or I'm sorry your feelings were hurt. Not I'm sorry for what I did that hurt your feelings. I'm sorry for what I did. We don't take responsibility. A couple of years ago, my daughter and I were in an argument in, Believe it or not, she's a preteen, so she was being a preteen about the whole thing. Unfortunately for her, so was her father. I was embarrassed. She wouldn't listen to me. I couldn't get my point across, and it's frustrating to me. Have you ever been in a a conflict with a 10-year-old and you're thinking, what, what, how can I? I am I am a capable and strong and smart man. I can say things people understand. And so I became childish about it and disrespectful. And I won. I won the argument. But I had to go to her afterwards and ask for her forgiveness, which if you've ever truly had to ask for your child's forgiveness, it is incredibly humbling. And I went to her and I said, if anyone had ever spoken to me the way that I spoke to you, I would have not handled it with the grace and patience you did. In fact, if anyone spoke to you the way I spoke to you, I would have not handled that well. And I'm sorry. I was wrong. And I am terrified that when you think about me, this is the conversation you're going to think about. Can you forgive me? It is humbling. But when you love somebody, you cannot risk telling only part of the truth. You know, you said some things that were out of line, and I said some things that were out of line. She's 10, I'm the dad. The last 10% of truth was I was wrong. It doesn't matter that you acted like a preteen, I'm not supposed to. You got to tell the last 10% of truth. A sin has been destructive and it has been harmful. Could you forgive me? We need to tell the last 10% of truth when it comes to our sin, not only with God, but it certainly begins with God. And so I've asked Sawyer to come and lead us in a time of prayer and confession.
2: So what is your last 10% of truth? Don't worry, we're not going to have you get into groups of three or four and start confessing all your deepest darkest secrets that's not not what we're about right now but but we do want to take seriously the weight of all the wrongs that we've done one writer of scripture says um, speaking on the gravity of unconfessed sin uh, when I kept silent my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long for day and night your hand was heavy on me my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. So is there something that's weighing on you today? Something that's, um, that's keeping you up at night? Throughout our time, has God brought anything to mind? I, um, I think we should take some time. We should have a quiet moment to talk honestly with God about this. He already knows it all, so confession is actually not about him. It's about our ability to drop our false self and be real with him and um, and accept his love for us ask him for his forgiveness and if this is new to you or maybe it's strange um, I, don't, I don't want you to feel obligated to participate but would you be open to the idea that God wants to hear from you maybe um, say a prayer and ask him that if he's real that he make himself real to you before we do, let's, um, let's actually pray these words of the Psalms together. Um, when you see the words in bold, read those aloud with me. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Now, let's confess our sins to the Lord. <laughs> you ask God to lead you to someone someone who you can confess sin to the brother of Jesus his name was James he said confess your sins to one another pray for one another that you may be healed God always gives his mercy and his forgiveness but I think there is something healing that happens when we confess our sins to each other so is there someone that you need to confess your sin to? Would you talk to God about that? And ask him to give you the courage and the strength to speak with them. Let's do that now. rich in mercy and love. No matter how great our sin, your love is so much greater. I pray for myself and my brothers and my sisters to be completely honest and transparent with you and with one another so that we may experience the healing of life in your kingdom. Give us the courage to do this in the name of Jesus. Amen.
1: So here is... The good news of Jesus. His love is greater than your sin. See, we've been talking all this time about interactive life with God and the mystery of interactive life with God, getting to participate with God, is that we don't bring anything to the table. It is all Him. At best, participation for us looks like a participation trophy. So congratulations, you're all millennials today. We are not worthy, but he is somehow crazy about us. You know, the gospel of our world is that you are enough. You feel like you're not, but you are enough. We say things like self-love is the most important love, that everyone would just feel good. We think that no one has to tell you that you're worthy. It matters that you have self-worth, that you believe in your own self-worth. My question is, how is that going for you? How well does that work? I'm not talking about what you pretend in front of others about your own self-confidence and self-worth. I'm saying when you're alone and you're quiet, do you really buy that? With everything you know about you, you buy that? The beauty of the gospel of Jesus is so wonderfully described in one of my favorite songs. It says, that the cross proves two wonders, my worth and my unworthiness that when we look at the cross, we have to confess two things, that I am somehow worthy, but also completely unworthy. When I look at the cross, I have to confess I am a sinner, and I have done evil. I have been cruel and selfish and harmed other people. I am unworthy of life with God. And somehow at the same time, the cross of Jesus means that I have infinite worth. I used to say to high school students when I would teach them, All the time, I would say, you only know what something is worth based on what anyone else is willing to pay for it. So what is your life worth? It is life, how can you quantify the precious body and blood of the Son of God? How do you calculate that? How do you measure that up? That is what you are worth. How precious are you to the Father? How loved and cherished are you? As precious as the blood of Jesus. And not because you earned it or you somehow figured out a secret that nobody else did, or you've done anything better than anyone else. In fact, it has nothing to do with you. It is all because of Jesus. Jesus loves you, not because of anything special and unique about you, but totally because of who he is. We are so busy. We work so hard trying to craft these identities. And these false selves and these stories for ourselves that we think, if people could just see this part of me, then they would know I'm worthy of being loved. And it leaves us feeling alone and scared and ashamed because we know my resume isn't me. That's not the real me. My social media feed, it is not me. That's not the real me. And all along, our Father says to us, your identity Your story is that you are loved, that you are a child of God. And because you did not earn my love, that means there's nothing you can do to lose it. It was given to you as a free gift because it is not about who you are. It's about who I am. And I never change and I never abandon and I never neglect or forsake or forget about you. You are now and forever loved. The problem is you won't accept this love if you are still trying to create a false self that is worthy. So can you just be honest? Honest with yourselves. Honest with God. Honest with some people in your life. Until then, you're just wearing a mask. You're playing dress up. You're playing pretend. So Jesus looks at this woman who can no longer play dress up and play pretend. Everybody knows. And after all her accusers have walked away, her mask is gone and she's vulnerable. And Jesus says to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. I mean, her head is spinning right now. There were a thousand versions of this story that she had played out, just like the stories all of us play out. I mean, she knew one day it's coming out, everyone's going to find out. And when it does, every time it ended with brutal death for her. She never imagined one where all these people just walked away. Just like you have these imagined horror stories of what's going to happen in your career, or to your marriage, to your friendships, when everything finally comes out. Or you finally get honest about it. Jesus says to her, then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. That's the invitation, by the way, to interactive life with God. It's not, hey, and this is how we hear it when we, when we say, you know, don't throw stones at me. Hey, everybody sins. Everyone does bad things. Yours ain't that big of a deal. This can all be handled. Sin ain't that big of a problem. No one should be shaming you or telling you anything's wrong. Don't listen to the haters. You just keep on moving. That's not the invitation. The invitation is now it's possible for you to go and leave your life of sin. All this that led you to right here, you don't have to do that anymore. You can go now and leave your life of sin. And that is not just a life that's free of bad stuff. That's the way we hear it. I'm no longer going to do bad stuff. It is a life of full of things you can't imagine. My worst case scenario on that day when my wife found out about my sin was that I was going to be 19 years old and divorced. I was convinced she's not coming home tonight. She walked out that door. She said nothing to me. She's gone. And I'm here in this house. I'm have to figure this whole thing out. I'm going to have to tell everybody. I don't know what to do. What I found through the power of Jesus, through the forgiveness and grace of other people, was a life that I could have never imagined. What was actually born after years of building trust was a kind of trust and honesty, a kind of intimacy, levels of loving delight that we now have for one another I'd never experienced before. I found friends that I could really trust, that I could be honest with. Because what we had before was not real trust. It was not honesty. It was built on a lie. It was built on a false self, a self-edited story that I'd created. And through the power and grace and forgiveness of Jesus, not only was I set free from this addiction, I had found a life that I could never have imagined all those years before. I don't know what will happen in your situation. I don't know what you face. What I know is that the greatest joy of my life has been life with God, that he has been good enough to allow me to have with other people. How can you have interactive life with God when you're not being honest with him or yourself? His love is powerful, but it is not forceful. He will not force you to let him in. You have to turn your feet towards him and actually take a step. So that's why we say all the time, what is your next step? Who do you need to talk to? Maybe you're new to our church and you're trying to figure this out. I find often when I talk to people now, the reason you can't be real with anybody is because you don't let anybody in. You ain't got nobody. So maybe you need to go to our Next Step Center and sign up for this class where you could actually meet some people that maybe one day you could be honest with them about this. Maybe you could investigate what life with God and our community looks like. Right now... We're going to draw near to the love of God by remembering the great cost Jesus paid to free us from our sin on the cross. I've invited Sawyer to come and lead us in doing this through the meal of communion.